0: The following podcast contains explicit language.
1: Hello, and welcome to The B-Side for episode 1643 of our national conversation about conversations about race, Getting Pee from a Diaper. I'm Anna Holmes, here with Baratunde Thurston. Hello.
2: Yo, hello, hello. Glad that
1: you're back in the studio with us Hell again. yeah.
2: Was up, Brooklyn? Uh, and and non-Brooklyn also. Yeah, and non-Brooklyn yeah.
1: and Staten Island. <laughs> Tanner, Tanner Colby. Hi, Tanner.
2: Hi, Anna. How are you? I'm good.
1: And also joining us from sunny San Francisco, LaToya Peterson, an editor at ESPN and Racialicious.com. LaToya. Hello,
3: hello. Hi. Um, good to hear you.
1: So, as most of us know, our last episode was devoted entirely to the show Atlanta, Donald Glover's new and somewhat experimental TV dramedy on FX. We talked a little bit about how it made some of us uncomfortable, namely me, Uh, (laughs) the way women are framed in the show, and whether a person can actually get pee from a diaper. What do you think, we asked, and you sort of answered. So here's our producer, A.C. Valdez, with some of what you had to say about that and more.
0: So I just want to share something that Cody, our uh, tech maven and uh, research guru, shared on our Slack channel. Yes, you can, in fact, get plenty of pee from a diaper like that. Um, wow! Just just so wait, information did, did from the new father out
2: himself. That's I how think he, he, he
4: accidentally found out. <laughs> but I, as, as, as what speaking, does that mean? You can't accidentally. Yeah, go you that chemistry chemistry out. No, I've I've never as another the other new father in the room. I've never accidentally gotten. I've gotten diapers out of my apartment, but I've never gotten. And you've pee. gotten peed on, yeah. Oh, I've gotten peed yeah. on. I think I've been shat on more so than I've been never peed stepped on, on. Oddly, on the
3: floor. <laughs> <laughs>
4: never
1: oh,
3: never stepped on a diaper on the. No,
1: floor? No, never stepped on a diaper on the floor.
3: That, that's yeah. Wait, that Why
1: was the, the on diaper, diaper on the, the floor? Bags.
2: All kinds <laughs> of yeah, that's things. That's way I up put it in the garbage.
1: Well, you should tell
3: that to Chris, my husband. Oh, it's Chris's fault. There we go. I am not the person. We're calling you out, Chris. Chris is going to be like, "What?
2: You're featured in the podcast."
3: <laughs> Pick up your diapers,
2: Chris.
1: Seriously. So wait, LaToya, you're saying that when Chris has left diapers on the floor that they've been he stepped on. He used
3: to, so too, uh, so so now Gabby's like three, so this isn't happening anymore. But he used to kinda change him in the middle of the night and just drop it and not really think about it. Oh my god. Go and he'd be like uh uh-huh. oh, yeah, and then Scooby would eat them. My dog is Scooby. So Scooby would then eat wow. Wait, 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 wait. Okay. I,
1: I want to go back. So wait, pee would come out of the diaper like there would actually be liquid
3: on it the floor? It depends on how saturated it is. Oh, my God. It depends on oh. how saturated it is. Okay. If it's an all-night-I-didn't-pee-before-bed diaper, possibly. If it's a... <laughs> Yo. T- know, there, there's <laughs> grades of diapers. Let's, let's, yeah, I was going to say, let's do a schematic. <laughs> come, back. come back to Atlanta. Yeah, let's, let's, back let's
0: pivot
4: back. back. Yeah. Pivot, okay. pivot. Time with okay. the pivot. We're gonna, okay,
0: we're going to rein it in here. And we have actually a more serious
5: question from Graham. Hey, y'all. My name's Graham. I'm calling from Austin, Texas. I really enjoy your show, and I'm completely in love with the show Atlanta. That Montague episode might be my favorite piece of television ever. And it's the first show that I've felt really nails the discomfort and absurdity of being a black 30-something in modern America. My question is, do you think that, as a critical darling, there's a danger that Atlanta can be used by white majority critics as a sort of arbitrary yardstick for black shows? in a way that's ultimately detrimental to furthering artistic opportunities for people of color. Arbitrary in the sense that the only thing that shows like Luke Cage and Secure have in common with Atlanta is that they're largely produced and acted by black professionals, yet they each have entirely different goals, I think, as pieces of art. I've already had conversations with, even with my black friends, in which the nuance and craft of Atlanta has been used as a kind of blunt object with which to critique Shows like Luke Cage for employing what many people have called stereotypical portrayals of black life. To me, Luke Cage exists in a completely different universe. Comics employ archetypes, which are very different than stereotypes. It actually reminds me a lot of how Solange's music is often used to critique Beyoncé's shortcomings, when a more accurate comparison for Beyoncé is probably Taylor Swift, who she frankly wipes the floor with. But anyway, I just wonder if this is something that black cultural critics should be vigilant against, the danger of our best art eventually being used against us as a gatekeeper of sorts. Because studios don't generally refuse to green light white shows because they're not as good as Sopranos, but I could easily see that happening with Atlanta. Thanks for your time.
1: Wow. That's, I mean, I don't know how to answer that because that's a good question, but I don't know how to answer it. Latoya. That was super
3: deep. I I knew you were going to toss it. Yes, you did. Because (laughs) Uh I could feel it. I I did. I'm going to slide it on the side. No, seriously, though. I love that question. I love that question of weaponized art, right? And this idea of who do we have to be to be, quote unquote, taken seriously, to be a a part of the cultural conversation. And I think there is a very real danger. And when I was listening to the uh, listener's question, one of the things that's all about was the wire. And how immediately, like after The Wire, The Wire became the benchmark for particularly like a majority white critic pool to leverage against other artworks, even, you know, other artworks that followed it, like Treme. I definitely had a falling out with a certain critic that I will not name, (laughs) who was trying trying to argue that Treme and The Wire should be essentially the same show, which they were doing very, very different things. But I don't think that as someone who talks to a lot of black creators, that we should have a fear of anything that we are making, right? That there is anything wrong with making what we want to make, right? There's space for Tyler Perry, and there is space for Luke Cage, and there's space for Atlanta, and there's space for Insecure, and there's space for Love Jones. Like, there is space. And so even as I, I recognize, and I think I validate that listener's argument and that worry that in the hands of the wrong people, this becomes a weaponized thing to bludgeon other black art with, I always think that art is stronger than that. Art is stronger than racism. Art is stronger than any preconceived box people try to stuck it in. And the thing that tells what art ultimately means and what it's worth is time.
1: I have a question for you, Latoya, because I agree with you. I agree with you, but I also don't know that I agree. I agree with you broadly, but I don't know if I agree with you with regards to that there's space for all these things. Like There is because they exist right now, but I don't know that there always is going to be space for them. And I think that like part of who creates the space continue to be gatekeepers and the executives and development people at large corporations who might now be giving a number of black creators openings and opportunities. I don't know that that's going to be the case two or three years from now. And the only reason I say that, and I'm not necessarily normally a pessimist, is because I and I brought this up on a different episode, a conversation that, that I had with Jeff Chang, who was talking about what, what Fox was doing in the 90s with regards to supporting and developing shows around, around Black families and Black characters, and that they jettisoned that at one point because they decided to go, quote-unquote, more, more mainstream. And, and there was a real drought in television for a number of years with regards to Black stories. And I guess what he was saying was that he, d- he believes that can happen again. He, he thinks that we're in a really interesting moment right now, but he believes that those those keys can be revoked uh, just as easily again. And maybe they can't because of the fact we now have digital distribution and people who work at studios and cable networks and, and broadcast networks don't control production of content and the di- distribution in the same ways that maybe they did in the 90s. But I guess I just, I guess I don't know that I agree that there's space for all those things. Like I think there should be, but I don't know that there
3: is. I think that the process by which we create space is a constant negotiation, right? So like Jeff's point is really well met that there was this huge black renaissance for both TV and film in the 90s. And then it suddenly seemed to vanish. And it wasn't because the audiences vanished or wasn't that those things changed. It was just more that... Some executive somewhere decided, hey, we're just going in a different direction. We're not talking to black people anymore. And that was it. But I think that the country has changed very dramatically. Um, And I know that there's fears about which way it's going and we won't really find out till next week. So stay tuned for that. I can't wait for that episode of this podcast. Oh, my God. But there's (laughs) some. (laughs) I feel as though like the demographics in the country have started to shift in a way that's dramatic in the way that overlooking. The buying power Mm -hmm. of not only African-American dollars, but also Latino dollars, but also Asian-American dollars, but also these other things and the way that the money is pouring into Hollywood. It is going to change the landscape of what people think is acceptable and what people think is bankable. And particularly as things continue to kind of uh, disaggregate into the digital ether Whereas, you know, Issa, Issa didn't come out of a Hollywood system. Issa right. came out of YouTube. And so as these things continue to disaggregate, like, yes, there will still be gatekeepers who might have, you know, a, definitely a, a little more whitewashed vision of what they think the future should be. Um, but I think that the variety and empowerment that users are experiencing, users are feeling, users are facing now, people will know that we need to keep demanding, oh, if this isn't here, then I'm not going to patronize this film. If this isn't, if I don't see... A world that I'm interested in, uh-huh. I'm not mm-hmm. going to go here. And I think that that's around a lot of the crisis that's happening in Hollywood right now. They're realizing that they have to make shows that reflect the world that we're currently in, because if not, people aren't buying the all-white cast the way that they used to. Well,
1: and people, it's just are, because it's people not the reality are also anymore. are also complaining about that in, in a much more vocal and sustained and and powerful way than they were able to right.
4: before. We may well see some backsliding or backlash against this this. Black cultural moments we're having, but to the listener's question, I don't think that you know white development executive gatekeeper people are sophisticated enough that oh the nuance of Atlanta means that I will then not think well of Issa Rae. I think they'll, if anything, they'll just be more simplistic. Oh, Atlanta, that got a lot of good feedback. Black stuff's working now. Let's do more black stuff. I mean, that would be m- my white executive mentality if I'd put
1: myself but it, in. But there. was that the concern of the of the listener?
2: Was I think it? I think his concern was that. The bar, the nuance, the complexity, the surreality of Atlanta mm-hmm. would be held as the only type of black show we'd be making from here on mm-hmm. out. Like, If it's not The Wire and it's not Shakespeare in the hood, mm-hmm. then we can't do it. It's not quote-unquote good enough. I love the, the listener comment. I, to me, it reminds all of y'all who are listening send us voicemails because it's just great to hear your voice Yes, and we can just like listen and not just react and everybody can hear what you have to say in, in the way you intended it. The idea that this would be weaponized that like a quality show or a show of the type of Atlanta against black people. Yes. And so will everything else in the universe. <laughs> <laughs> True. It has been, and it will continue to be. And I think we are in a beautiful window Of just a plethora of production, like so much stuff is being made, but there are still gatekeepers. And even though the system is changing, like the way Hollywood has worked cannot continue. But we're going to be asking the same questions of the Facebook algorithm and the Twitter trending topics algorithm, and in the YouTube search results and recommendations. In the future, there will be robots who will determine. Robots and software will determine what we watch based on our customized personal profiles and. Whoever creates those systems that determine what the systems recommend, their biases, their approaches to what's good or not, how they decide if something's viral slash popular slash trending, mm-hmm. that's going to affect. And we'll have a different but very related conversation about what type of art in general mm-hmm. and black art in particular is getting seen in quote unquote Greenland. Uh, because we can all now make stuff, our phones are HD production studios, but we can't all be seen. Because there's too much stuff being made because we can all make stuff.
1: Oh, my God. Racist robots. AC, do you want to go on to the next? Oh, there's The next thing
0: I want to bring up is uh, actually a Twitter thread that we're bringing up. So we tweeted out this quote from Anna from last episode about Atlanta. The first episode and the second made me pretty uncomfortable. And I'm still trying to figure out why I felt so uncomfortable.
1: That's the quote that you tweeted out? That's the quote. That's the quote
0: that we tweeted out from the getting pee from a diaper episode. At Bree Bree Joy tweeted back to us a legitimate and honest expression of feeling, which was somewhat shut down by Raquel Cepeda. You two had an exchange yes. where Bree Bree Joy said several times you, I think, confessed a legitimate view regarding discomfort about Paperboy that the girlfriend was put in the nag roll, etc. And and Raquel later replied, "I didn't judge Anna for her discomfort. I simply had a different point of view." So. Anna you wanted to bring this up on this b-side and I, I'd like you to to kind well, of tell us a little bit why.
1: Oh, because because it was a listener reaction and mm-hmm. and I think that listener you know listener reactions apparently come in all shapes and sizes and forms and so that was a twitter thread. I, I don't know that I wanted you to bring it up. I, <laughs> I suggested it as an option in case you needed like listener yeah. reaction to quote from. But I also don't there's nothing more that I have to say about it. Like I, I said what I wanted to say to the listener which was that I did not feel I was being shut down. But I also have, at least in that case, had and have the courage of my convictions. I believed what I, 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 I was not ashamed of being, of, of expressing discomfort. Um, I felt that I articulated it in a pretty straightforward way. So I didn't feel like there really was the opportunity for me to feel shut down. Also, I was running the show, okay? <laughs> so, <laughs> right. um, so yeah, I do not feel shut down by that.
0: Yeah, and I don't think I don't think Raquel felt she was shutting you down no. either. I think the way I read it was really just that Raquel felt differently, and that's
2: you know how it is. Yeah. Um, okay. So people okay. on the podcast had different opinions.
1: Yeah. Ooh oh, no. But it's good. But it's good that like that listeners are are responding and communicating that way because that's that's a much more direct way. I mean, you know, I I love the voice memos and they should keep coming, please, and the emails. But but you know, I was responding to that particular listener in real time, and that was you know that it, it was a new thing for me.
3: That was nice.
0: And y'all should always feel free to tweet us at showaboutrace. Moving on to our next listener email, and this is kind of one I'm going to leave off on given that we are doing this the Friday before the election. And this is from Catherine. This is a response to a B-side episode in which a person asked if Trump had any positive impact on the conversation about race. The panel seemed to come to the conclusion that no, he hadn't. I disagree solely because as a young, white, suburban, upper middle class woman, who grew up in a very liberal area, I honestly did not comprehend the degree to which racism was still pervasive outside of the stereotypically racist southern states. The level of racist hatred that has come out in the past months, courtesy of the Trump campaign, has shocked, scared, and galvanized me to be more aware and to speak out against the subtly racist behavior I've seen, but not always comprehended. Best, Catherine. Yo, so, is beautiful. That, is that enough of a silver lining?
2: Because I think... No, there, I mean, I think there are many silver linings. I'm actually working on a piece about the silver linings It's called Silver Linings Playbook. And uh, part two <laughs> It's going to be amazing. More silver, more Back linings. Back to the playbook. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. More play. Yeah, and way more plays uh, updated for the new game. I have gotten a similar response from people online to some of my writings or postings, I mean, Donald Trump, you know, I've used this analogy before, but I think he's a black light. And he is, you know, being shined across America and reveals a lot of the disgusting things that we would rather not remember have always been present. Mm-hmm. And they are just outside of the visible spectrum for most people. But if you change the lighting system, you're like, oh, this you place get orangey, <laughs> this,
1: this is this is giving me like like flashbacks of like various Law and Order SVU episodes where like they bring out like their forensics to try and figure mm-hmm. out like where the semen is. Yeah, no, that, and, <laughs> yeah. and
2: it turns out it's everywhere. <laughs> yeah, it right. turns out it's everywhere, and oh, he's also yeah. like you know adding to it because <laughs> he's filthy. I'm really glad for this listener's not only like increased awareness, but she's sound like she's taking this extra step mm-hmm. of calling things out that even feel more subtle, and you know we, we like to feel better than other people who we think of as bad. Right? <laughs> I yeah. like, oh, the Northerners love to talk trash about the South, Democrats love to talk trash about Republicans, educated people love to talk trash about uneducated people, rich people definitely love to talk trash about poor people, and try to make it moral, and try to imagine that whoever's doing the judging has no capability to engage in the behavior that they are judging, and we all do. So I think it's a significant silver lining and I think Trump has, you know, played a disgusting and painful, but often valuable role yeah. in calling forth and reminding us that our poo really does still stink.
1: <laughs> okay, I, I had two reactions to that listener comment. One was similar to yours, mm-hmm. and then there was one that wasn't so welcoming. And it might be just because I'm grumpy. I'm a little grumpy today. I'm I'm tired. Grumpy cat. <laughs> I'm yeah. Grumpy cat. But my and one of my reactions was, "Where have you been <laughs> the past, especially the past eight years?" Like I. I don't, I think that Trump has, you know, been, as you said, a black light in terms of um, surfacing stuff that felt like maybe it was just under the surface a bit. But I, I feel like the entire reaction to Obama's election has, and that's that was eight years ago, at least for me.
2: You mean his coronation?
1: That's right, his, coron, his coronation. <laughs> yes. <laughs> has revealed something about the United States and the people who live within it and their ideas that I think of was a bit. I wasn't anticipating. I think if you'd asked me 10 years ago, and this is a really reductive way of putting it, but I'm going to do it anyway. What percentage of white Americans hold virulently racist views? I would have said, um, 18% maybe. If you ask me that now, I'm going to say like 42, maybe even more. Because of the ways in which Obama's election was positioned and reacted to, and not just online commenters or YouTube commenters, but mm-hmm. Republican congressmen and all sorts of things. So when I heard what she had to say, I, I felt a little frustrated because I, you know, I'm like, well, why didn't didn't you notice what was going on <laughs> the, the past eight years after Obama got elected? Not to mention before that, but that for me was the one thing that really brought it into well, sharp relief.
4: I think it also, I mean, it depends on your speak news diet. Speak the white and people. I will, I will. I speak for all white people <laughs> right now. It depends on your news diet and where you get your information. Yeah. I mean, for... You know, as, as we all know, the the racialized Southern strategy of Republicans got shrouded in all sorts of code words about government and taxes, busing and federal control, and, and they stopped talking about racism. And I honestly believe that the Paul Ryans of the world so bought into this cult of Reaganism and this idea of free market, small government, that they honestly didn't know that they were presiding over a white nationalist party. I don't think Paul Ryan knew, which is Mm. crazy, right? So, and even during most of Obama's presidency, yeah, you saw a lot of crazy online commenters. You saw Trump with his birtherism, but for the most- It wasn't just Trump. But no, but for the most part, they kept it within Mitt Romney's huge scandal was that he said that 47% of the people in this country are takers and not makers. I mean- yeah, that's a, if you know the, the history of this country, that's a racialized comment that white people built this country, black people on welfare, and they take away resources from white people. But that's still in and of itself a fairly coded... It, w- it wouldn't fit the description of virulently racist. Right, it wouldn't yeah. fit the description of virulently racist. And so the Republican Party, up until Trump, managed for the most part, as far as the mainstream media conversation is concerned to stay within the bounds of the code words and to say Obama's executive overreach, you know, and all this stuff. And then Trump came along and he just called but it what can, it was. You
1: can be virulently racist and still use code words. I don't think like if you use code words, that means you're not, but I'm talking about racist. what this
4: woman perceived from where she okay. said she didn't realize. I'm just,
1: yeah, yeah. I'm just saying I don't have, I don't have a lot of sympathy for it because like this has been evident to anyone who was paying attention. And, and I, I agree that people have different news sources, but Her self-described identity or identities did not give me the sense that she's ignorant or without access to (laughs) higher education, (laughs) uh, powers of perception, et cetera, et cetera.
2: There's a very limited amount. The country can only accept doses of justice in limited amounts because it feels like oppression to those who've historically been winning. And the opportunity and the ability to pretend that things are great is the default setting. Right, she like you want to believe the country's great. You want to believe Obama when he says we're not red and blue, we're purple, and like he helped create hopes in people like this listener that we could continue to move through this in like a nice smooth transition. It turns out it's not smooth at all. Sometimes we go backwards to go forward. We go sideways. We stay off the tracks. Take a nap. Uh, We fall off a cliff and have to rebuild the bridge that we thought was there. So I I think it requires a, a huge amount of patience and compassion. That is superhuman, often, to not have your reaction, Anna, because, like, where you been? Of course. Well, Um,
1: or or I have them simultaneously, which is, yeah, which is frustration and also,
2: okay, I get it. Appreciation and come on now. (laughs) We got work (laughs) to do.
1: Okay. Thanks for all your voice memos and emails and tweets, everyone. And we have a phone number. So give us a call if you want to join the conversation. Ready? The number is 612-888-RACE. Again, that's 612 888 (laughs) RACE.
2: Yo, for those of you who still use your phone to talk, we got (laughs) that. We got that for you. For
1: real. 612 888 RACE. If you feel like writing, of course, you can still email us or send a voice memo. The address is showaboutrace at gmail.com. Hang in there. The main episode is dropping soon.